It's Steve Oliver's birthday, who leads regions beyond. Happy birthday, Steve. <laughs> are we allowed to speak? I know we're not allowed to sing, but are we allowed to speak? Yeah, let's say, happy birthday, Steve. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, I'll t- send him a photo later of you all. In fact, let's, uh, let's do a selfie. There we are. <laughs> It's me on Romans. <laughs> Here we are. Great. Romans 10. Um, as we were worshipping, I was wondering, is uh, Dave Fullerton a descendant of W.Y. Fullerton, who we started uh, singing his hymn? Anybody else wonder that? Anyone else make the connection? There's also a connection between uh, I cannot tell and that kind of sense of uncertainty that W.Y. Fullerton experienced. He was um, uh, born in Belfast. He was an evangelist, and he was a friend of Spurgeon. In fact, he became, along with Manton Smith, a kind of double act of Spurgeon's traveling evangelist, and then later on he kind of progress he was president of the baptist union in 1920s and he wrote that great hymn but he didn't know certain things and he was he was left with a sense of perplexity and wonder and surveying what god was doing in history and in his story his own personal experience and although he knew it was all going to end out right and it was all going to end in glory the journey along the way filled him with many perplexities And the mixture of faith and joy and confidence in God didn't entirely extinguish that sense of pain and sorrow and grief and mourning. And so the two were very much part of his experience, just like it is many people's experience, and just like it is the Apostle Paul's experience when you look at this section of Romans uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And we'll see that Paul, uh, in one moment, he's full of exultant praise, and another moment, he's full of complete despair. And those two things, perhaps you think, they don't coexist. Actually, they tend to. And uh, that, that, that's something that I think as Christians, we're, we're not always comfortable with, because we want to be where the glory is, where there's joy unceasing, and uh, where we don't get any shadows, where we don't get any kind of perplexities. That's not the world that Paul lived in. I don't think it's the world that Jesus lived in when he was on earth, man of sorrows and yet anointed with joy above his fellows. And so we we do experience some some challenges along the way. Uh, I'm really glad that you invited me here today to speak on the book of Romans. It's uh, a book that uh, when I was growing up, I never read. I didn't come from a Christian family. And uh, when I failed my English language um, O-level, I did scrape a pass on the English literature. I think I read a bit of Shakespeare and that. I thought my days of reading and thinking about literature were were over. Then I got saved. And then I was introduced to the Bible and then somewhere along the, the lines, early in my Christian life, I was introduced to the letter to the Romans. <laughs> and since then, age 19, I'm now 62, um, 
I've been reading this letter on and off. Have you been reading this letter on and off for decades, maybe, some of you? Some of you look like you ought to have been reading it for decades. Um, and it's a challenging letter because it takes us out of uh, all kinds of areas of comfort and familiarity. It's a, an amazing uh, letter that has influenced people for hundreds and thousands of years now. This, this letter has influenced the church magnificently. Um, I did come with a PowerPoint this morning, and uh, it's not working anyway, it seems. Oh, there it is. I mean, if we think about this, this letter for a minute, um, there's a man called Augustine. Have you heard of him? He wrote a book called Confessions. Have you read it? And he was a, an intellectual genius, and he was involved with a kind of New Age movement of his day. But he was troubled because there was sin in his life, and he felt guilty. And he, he went through a real spiritual journey. And then one day, when he was feeling, you, you might say he was, I don't think he was quite suicidal, but he was really upset. He was standing in a garden and he heard a child singing in Latin, uh, tole lege, which means take up and read. He looked and there was a book and he picked it up. It was the letter to the Romans. And he read from Romans 13, not in carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy, but rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. And when he read that scripture, he felt as if his heart was flooded with light. He was totally transformed. He became a committed Christian and he was baptized by Ambrose on the Easter vigil, April the 24th, 387. He became one of the great doctors of the church and has shaped the whole of the Western world, probably uh, well beyond that but it came out of an encounter with the letters to the Romans. So you think about a young monk, Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk in the tradition of Augustine, played with a sense of guilt, going into the confessional sometimes up to three hours a day in order to make sure that he hadn't left any sin unconfessed. And when the priest saw it was Martin in the confessional, I think they groaned because he, even if he farted, he felt he'd sinned and needed to confess it to God. He felt such an overwhelming sense of his unworthiness and he studied the book of Romans and he stuck. He got, he got stuck over one verse that talked about, one phrase really, which talked about the righteousness of God. He knew that God was just and he was a judge and in the Old Testament he was, he was a very just judge. But in the New Testament, now the gospel had come, the levels of righteousness had come up. And therefore he felt all the more condemned and unworthy and he said the righteousness of God, when he realized that it didn't mean a standard by which he was judged, but now a status that was conferred upon him, and that the gospel revealed this, he said before that, he said, I hated the word righteousness of God. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And this furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But when I saw the true meaning of it, then finally God had mercy on me and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift. 
by which a righteous man lives. And I felt as though I'd been reborn and had entered paradise. Wow. This is an amazing letter that has transformed the last 500 years of European history, Reformation history, the fact that we're not Roman Catholics and singing in Latin or chanting in Latin today is because this man had this encounter with this God through this book that we are privileged to be able to study. He said every plowboy ought to memorize it. <laughs> I, I did an exercise on a train journey with Joseph. Uh, we went through Romans 8 verse by verse, without looking at it, trying to anticipate what was the next phrase. It was quite an interesting uh, experience because Paul is so full of diverse thoughts taking us in different dimensions. In uh, 1914, disillusioned with German Protestantism because it had become liberal and focused just on social uh, uh, action and, and so on, Karl Barth decided to write a commentary on Romans. And it was published in uh, 1918. Carl Adams said it fell like a bombshell on the theologian's playground. And it transformed the intellectual engagement of the gospel with, with, with the Swiss, German, and then Karl Barth's influence, many. Not always for good, but, but it came out of the letter for, from, from the Romans. And when we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, which we will get to for the kind of last few minutes of this talk, the way it's going at the moment, um, we'll see how it corresponds to situations that we're facing, where we are wanting to see God engage with, for Paul it was the Jewish nation, but our own nation. We want to see God engage with our own nation. And we're perplexed at times by why we see such little progress. We are pained by the fact that some of our family and friends who we've loved and prayed for for years have yet to come to faith. Or perhaps even they've died and they didn't come to faith. And there's unceasing anguish and sorrow in Paul's heart about the Jews and there's unceasing sorrow and anguish in us as we have a passion to see Jesus Christ exalted and to see the gospel advance far beyond the degree that we are at the moment. So Paul writing this letter to the Romans, you uh, had a refresher from Ray last week, I won't go over too much of that, but Paul is on his way to Spain, he, he's writing from Corinth, he wants to establish a relationship with the Roman church because he wants to advance the gospel into Spain. Paul is also concerned to lay down his gospel, and so he's got a kind of doctrinal angle in this letter. So he's setting out systematically what his thinking about the gospel is. In Romans 1 to 3, he's talking about God's sin and the wrath of God, and the big problem that we have. In 4 through to 8, he's talking about how the gospel deals with our sin so that we can be saved by faith, through grace, with assurance, not by law, but we can be saved with a confidence that we'll be, be saved forever. That's kind of Romans uh, 8, uh, up to Romans 8. And then 9, 10, and 11, he's perplexed with this problem that the faithful God who promised in the Old Testament all these things for Israel, and now the day of fulfillment has happened and the gospel is advancing through the Roman world, but the Jewish people as a whole haven't accepted it. In fact, the majority of them haven't. 
And there's a remnant, but it's only a remnant. And so the day of great breakthrough, the great day of great gospel advance is, is working in a very different way to how Paul would have expected it and how Paul would have wanted it. And he's wrestling with that because it's, it's a struggle. This is heaven or hell. This is life or death. This is God's faithful promises being worked out. This is God. What are you doing, God? How, how does this work? So he's a, he's, a, he's a fervent patriot. He loves his own nation. He wants to see them come to full faith. He's also writing to the Romans. And the Romans, as Ray explained last week, the Jews who were the majority in the, in the church there had to exit under the edict of Claudius. Then Claudius has died or the edict has passed and the Jews have come back. But in the interim, the Gentiles have taken over the leadership and, you know, things move on and they don't want to go back to the way it was. And there's attitudes of racism, there's attitudes of conflict that are going on in the church and Paul is addressing this and wanting to help heal and maintain a sense of unity. In fact, if you go through the chapters and you get eventually to Romans chapter 15, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He's really talking there about Jews and Gentiles working out a relationship together. It's not just that he wants the church to be one, it's he wants the Jews and the Gentiles not to be uh, separated, but to be together in the community. Just as God has reconciled us through the death of Christ to a holy God, so he wants us to be one community. Diverse, yes. Some people keep in Saturdays, maybe some people keep in Sundays. Some people keep in kosher, some people have in pork chops. That's okay. But let's work this out. Let's work out what it means to be the, the body of Christ. Welcome one another, accept one another as God in Christ has accepted you. So let's get to Romans chapter uh, 9, 10, and 11, and then we'll home in on Romans 10, and then we'll hopefully uh, find that it all makes sense. So Romans 9, uh, if you just go back to the end of Romans 8, this is where the grief and the, and the joy kind of come together. Romans 8, I am sure that neither Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, how does that happen? Between Romans 8 and Romans 9, did Paul have a coffee break? Did he go to bed and wake up in a bad mood? Or did he live with those things simultaneously because he was a big mind and a big heart engaging with a big God with big purposes? I, th I think it's probably the latter, that he, he lived with these things. And he's burdened about what's happened with the Jews. In chapter 9, he's dealt really with, with God's sovereign purpose in election and that God is working his mysterious, his purposes out in unexpected ways. And our God does things that sometimes offend us, disturb us. And God is God and he doesn't ask for our permission. He doesn't even require that we, that we understand 
him. He just is God and he does what God does. And Paul surveys biblical history, how things have worked out there, how God chose Abraham, how Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and why, how God chose Isaac. And he's the son of the promise. And Ishmael was not chosen. And Jacob had two sons. Sorry, yeah, uh, sorry. Um, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was the chosen one. And he was the rogue of the family. And Moses was chosen and Pharaoh wasn't. And there's disturbing things, but God's electing purposes carry on. Okay, that deals in Romans 9 with God's sovereignty. That's the, the, the main focus. But in Romans chapter 10, Paul's coming back. We will read Romans 10. Uh, let's start at verse 1. Because he wants to see this nation saved. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So God's got his elective purposes, which make it sure that people will be saved. And Paul's prayer is that God will save them. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, it's Martin Luther again, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him who they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But have they not all obeyed the gospel? Sorry, but they have not all obeyed the the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who, who has believed and what, what he has heard from us? And so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Let's stop there for a moment. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, it reflects some things that we're going through and more. And we ask you, Lord, that you will expand our hearts and minds and connect us with eternal truth from the gospel to nourish us and feed us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have I got any time left? Ten. Ten minutes. That's fine. So Paul is praying for Israel for the first 
uh, in the first verse, that's, that's what he's doing. He's praying. Let them be saved. He wants to see them saved. And we'll come back to the word saved in a moment. Quite a short moment, it seems. How do you get saved? You get saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that because it tells us in this chapter, and we know that because we know the gospel. But there seems to have been some confusion amongst the Jewish people who thought that perhaps they could get saved by obeying the law. The law was a gift of God, and it had been given to them, and they were quite diligent. In fact, they were very zealous. In verse 2, it tells us there that, Sorry, I bear witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, which is a strange thing because they did study the Bible. But then so would Paul up to that stage. So would Luther up for the years of his uh, youth and the early period of his time as a monk. He'd studied, but got the totally the wrong idea about how to get right with God, what, how to obtain righteousness. Righteousness is a standing, it's a legal status that you, entitles you to enter into the presence of God. And without it, you're unrighteous and you will be excluded, you will be condemned. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't submit to it. They were rebellious. It was a kind of intellectual rebellion born out of pride. We will establish our own righteousness. Paul says in Philippians, as regards to righteousness, righteousness according to the law. He said that he was, he was, he was advanced. He was, he was great at it. But in verse 4, there's a verse that says, but Christ was the end of the law. Now this, you need to interpret this phrase quite carefully I have a lot of time so I won't be able to go into a great lot of detail but the dispensational interpretation is under the Old Testament the law was the basis of righteousness but under the New Testament Christ is the end of the law and therefore there's this new way of grace not true the goal is the meaning of the word end here the law points to Christ and Christ is the only way of righteousness how did saints in the Old Testament get saved? They got saved by grace, through faith. Paul's established that in Romans 3 and 4 and 5. Moses, David, Abraham, they all got saved by faith, exactly the same way that you do. The law was never meant to save people. The law couldn't save people. Paul's established that in Romans 7. He, tell, he said, there's nothing wrong with the law, except it can't do this because there's something wrong with me. The law can command the good, but it, I can't do the good. Well, you've studied Romans 7, so you know all that, don't you? Let me put it simply. Salvation is by mercy, not by merit. It's a five-letter word beginning M-E-R, but the C-Y works and the I-T doesn't. If you try to do it yourself, when it comes to salvation, you're never going to succeed. You need to change your heart. Can you give yourself a heart transplant? No, you can't. You cannot do it. It's impossible. There's no DIY way of salvation. And you could be a Jew, you could be a Greek, you could be English, you could be a gifted person. You could have had angels singing around your bed when you were born, but you cannot save yourself. It's impossible. 
Merit doesn't work. It's got to be mercy. So how do you get saved? Paul says in verse 6, it's not hard. It's not obscure. He says there, um, the righteousness based on faith, that's how it works. It doesn't say um, who will ascend into heaven. You don't have to go into heaven to find it. You don't even have to go up on Mount Sinai like Moses to get a new advance of the law. You don't have to go down into the depths to find it. You don't even have to go down through the Red Sea again like Moses. All you have to do is look into your own heart and your own lips. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's what you believe and more to, more to the point, who you believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. In verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How easy is it to get saved? You believe he died for you. You confess Jesus is Lord. It's simply a matter of faith, of trusting. How easy is it? It's easy as sitting on a chair. Faith is simply putting all the weight of your sins onto the cross of Jesus. You're trusting him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Just like sitting on a chair. I'm not trying to do anything. It's taking my weight. All I'm doing is resting on it. That's faith. And it carries me up. And I knew it would carry me up. And when I come to Jesus, I know that in him there is power. There's power in his death. So I can just rest. I don't have to do anything. It's not merit, it's mercy. Hallelujah. You're allowed to say hallelujah. It's not hard, it's not obscure, it's not difficult. It's like sitting in a chair. You simply put your trust in Jesus. When you get someone to come around and do a job at your house, some plumbing, some electrical work, you don't need to give them advice. They're there to do it for you. And you can just let them get on with it. You drop your car off because it's got some problem. You leave it and the garage sorts it. You don't need to know, really. I know probably you like to know, but you don't need to. You just give it. You get on a plane. You don't need to know how to fly a plane. You leave it to the pilot. You don't stand and knock on the door and say, do you need any help? And he takes you from A to B. Wherever it is in the world, he knows the way and how to get there. Jesus is the one. He knows how to deal with us. He knows how to sort our hearts. He knows how to repair us. He knows how to take us to where we need to be. And if we trust him, he will get us there. The Jews wanted to make their own way, and people want to make their own way. And it's troubling and perplexing and bewildering and upsetting that people don't respond to the gospel, even though God has made it plain. Neil was talking at the early part of the service to the people and they couldn't hear because there was a problem with our technicality. But Paul says in verse 14, 18, sorry, have they not heard? Indeed they have. The voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It's quoting Psalm 19, verse 4. God is making his word known through his creation and now he's making it known through his gospel. And it's not rocket science. It's such a simple message. But we're still working with the fact that not everybody has responded. It's a burden. We're longing for revival. We're longing to see breakthrough in our land. 
For Paul, as a Jew, he was longing for more of his own people to come to faith. And today, even today, we're still praying for many Jews to come to Jesus. In Israel, there are between 10 and 15,000 who've come to faith in Jesus and are in a network of Messianic assemblies. God is doing a work that Paul would have rejoiced in today, but he just still wanted more. And he'd be praying for more and working for more and somehow knowing that God will work this out and bring it through. In chapter 11, which you're going to do next week, they do, he deals with, what, so what's going to happen? Will they be saved? Can they be saved? How will they be saved? But that's for next week. This week. Let's keep praying and believing God that breakthrough will come in our nation. Let's keep praying and believing that breakthrough will come in our families. Let's keep praying that God will work things out. We might say with Fullerton, I cannot tell. I cannot tell why he came, but I know he did. And I know he died. And I know he's going to work all things out come the end. That's how Paul can say in Romans 11, verse 30, um, 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has been able to repay him a gift? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God is going to work these things out. He is working these things out. Let's move forward in confidence. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of God unto salvation that's found in the gospel. We thank you, Lord. It's, it's not difficult and we just come Lord with our burdens with our sins and we thank you that we can lay them on you that all the weight that we feel can be completely put on you just like sitting in a chair we can put everything on you and so all our grief all our sorrow all our pain all our sin all our anxiety about life and death all our anxiety and uncertainty about your church in the world about the progress it is making and the progress it's not making. Lord, we thank you in the end. It's all for you. It's all for your glory. And our confidence is not that we can work it out, but that you will. And that salvation will come. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Amen. Amen. Amen.